Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, yea, Greetings this morning in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. Greetings. Our call to worship uh, today is the 16th Psalm. I'm going to be preaching later today about death and resurrection, and I read the psalm as our call to worship to hear the great hope and the joy that we ought to have in the Lord, understanding what the Bible says about the death and the eternal life of the believer. Hear the word of the Lord, the 16th Psalm, a victim of David. Preserve me, O God, for in You I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for calling us together to be Your people. We thank You for calling us together here in this meeting house of the Lord. Lord, these walls, this room becomes a special place because here on Your day we gather as Your people knowing that You are with us in a special way. We pray that You would inhabit the praises of Your people today. We know that You will and we are joyful. Lord, even as some of us struggle with problems and challenges, sins that we cannot seem to conquer, even as we struggle with sorrow of death and loss of loved ones, we have joy in what You have told us in Your Word. I pray today that we would come to understand that more fully. 
Help us to rejoice and help our praise of You and our worship of You to be pleasing and acceptable in Your sight. For You are our Lord, our Rock, our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please stay standing just for a moment as I read my short uh, sermon text for today. Uh, you already heard it when um, Derek read this from John chapter 11. It's just verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would um, be with me now as I try to uh, delve into and rightly divide this topic. It's important for us to know, Lord. Your Word gives us everything that You want us to know about it. And I pray that You would help me to communicate it effectively, that Your Holy Spirit would speak through me, and that we would have ears to hear. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. As I said earlier, uh, providentially, our catechism question this week had to do with death and resurrection of the believer. And as I knew Pastor Mark was going to be gone, I had a, a few ideas of things to preach about, but I felt that although this might be the hardest of the ones I considered, it's the one that the Lord wanted me uh, to talk about. Now more than ever, since the death of my wife, I realize the importance uh, of understanding what the Bible says about death and resurrection of believers. We all suffered the loss of my wife um, 12 weeks ago, about 12 weeks ago. Many of you have suffered. We were at the funeral for Jason's grandpa not too long ago. Andrea buried her father not too many years ago. Um, the Ratliffs have buried a daughter. You know, I'm not going to go through the whole list. We've all suffered losses, and we're going to suffer more. And so I think it's important not just to have head knowledge about this, to understand what the Bible teaches, but to know what to do with that. How does that inform our lives as followers of Christ? You know, when we have physical pain in our body, it's a signal to us, right? That something is wrong. And just telling us God gives us that pain to say, you need to do something. And so when we have the emotional pain of loss, I think it's Him awakening us to say, wake up, I'm trying to teach you something. There's a lesson here to be learned. Uh, you know, th- this may get difficult for me. If it does and I start crying, Becky, you're going to get me. I'm not going to look at you. Uh, if I start crying, I'm just going to go with it. I'm just going to keep pushing forward. I, I may not. I- Sometimes I think I've got to be all cried out. You know, there, can't- there just can't be that many tears left. Um, but I, was- I appreciated what the pastor said at that funeral yesterday for April when he said, God gives us tears as a gift. Uh, it's a gift He gives us. Imagine if we weren't allowed to cry or if your body couldn't cry. How painful that would be when you had the need to do that. You just got to cry. And uh, I hardly ever had that need up until the last six months. But I've had it a lot since then. I'm thankful for that gift. So if that happens, I pray you will, you'll stick with me and I will get through it. So the death of a loved one brings about some difficult questions. And I'm going to try in my brief sermon today to answer those questions. I want to start by saying in 1 Thessalonians 4, the Apostle Paul offers us some comfort as believers. He says, a couple excerpts, and I'll read the entire passage later, but he says, We do not want you 
to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And he concludes that passage saying, therefore, encourage one another with these words. He doesn't say go around and make each other sad. There is great encouragement. And I want you to take from my sermon today that there is great hope for us as believers. You know, you may be the next one to face someone in your family dying, either watching them die, as I did with Kirsten, or a sudden, unexpected death. Or you may be the person who is diagnosed yourself, and someone tells you, as they told us in that phone call, you have six months. Start to prepare. And so I want to help you to, as a brother in Christ and as an elder in the church, to help us to prepare. It's not something we like to talk about, right? Uh, we'd rather be blessed with inexperience in this area, but it's something we need to know and understand. And Paul tells us there is comfort, there's encouragement if you understand this. So here are the questions I want to answer. Uh, and there are many others, and I may not get to all of them thoroughly, but these are the things I want to try to tackle. Why did this have to happen now? In other words, was God's plan thwarted or messed up somehow? Was the timing disrupted by something beyond His control? Second question, can I communicate with her? What exactly happened to her after she breathed her last? I watched Kirsten take her last breath at four in the morning on that Friday. What happened in that instant? What happened to her body? What happened to her soul? Will I ever see her again? And if so, what will that be like? And you children, I want you to be paying attention here too. I know you always do, but the sermon is not just for the adults. Some of you children are going to have to wrestle with these things. My children already have. And I want us to be prepared. What will happen, and when I say her, I'm going to preach about Kirsten today. I could talk in generic about a person that dies, but this is kind of fresh in my memory and I think in all of ours. And so if it's okay with you, I'm just going to... I'm going to talk about her, but of course it applies to every believer in the Lord. So the question is, what will happen to her earthly body? We were out at the cemetery just an hour ago uh, where where that, that casket is buried. When will she get her glorified resurrection body? And what will that be like? The new heavens and the new earth. When do we get to go there? When do we get to live there? And what is that? And finally, what do we do with the answers to all these questions? Again, if we understand these things... How does it inform our life as a Christian while we are still living? So before I start to answer these, my first comment is I want to be really careful to try to just be scriptural about this. There's a lot of ditches to fall into here, a lot of pitfalls, a lot of uh, either heresies or just old wives' tales that sometimes we go around repeating and sometimes believing that actually are not from the Bible. And there's a lot of things about death that are just dark. And I don't mean dark like evil. I mean, they're they're unknown. There's no light shined upon them in the Word of God. And there are some things that are, but some things that aren't. And so I don't want to try to pretend that I have answers to all these things and I understand them perfectly. I don't. I don't think God wants us to. I think He has given us everything He wants us to know. Do you agree with that? In other words, we are not a poor church. It's not like... There's a book of the Bible that would have talked about this, but we didn't get it. Where's that missing letter that Paul wrote to such and such a church? Maybe that would tell more. No, we have the full, complete Bible that God wants us to have. So the the things He wants us to know, we know. And the things we don't know, that we don't understand, that's by design. God didn't make any mistakes in what He gave us in the Bible, right? 
So, we are not a poor church. And if we study His Word, you know, then we'll know those things. The shame is, if we don't study the Word and we just walk around, as Paul said, uninformed. We don't want to be uninformed. He said, I don't want you to be uninformed about these things because he had no doubt seen people lose loved ones. Paul may have put people to death and the families of the people he was speaking to. Can you imagine that? So this is not a theoretical thing for Paul. He's saying, I want to offer you comfort. I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to understand what to think about that loved one that you've lost. So why did this have to happen now? I've asked that question many times through tears. My wife was 43 years old with nine young children and a young husband. Not quite as young as her, but um, it does make you wonder, was this some kind of accident? I mean, did something go wrong here? It sure seemed to me that Kirsten was supposed to live a long time, way beyond what she did. And we would see our grandchildren. I planted a little tree out back, the Kirsten maple, and it was going to grow to be 40 feet tall. And we were going to sit out there and watch our grandchildren climb in that tree. And it looks like something went wrong. I mean, we really think that, don't we? The the timing of this is not right. Uh, When children die in infancy or or at any age, it just seems like this could not possibly be God's plan. And I've had many people tell me that. I know this isn't what God had for you. And as much as emotionally we want to believe that, I don't think that's biblical. In Revelation 1.18, Jesus says, I died and behold... I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. The person that holds the keys is the person that lets people in and out of the door. No one, goes, no one comes to life apart from Christ, and no one goes through that door of death apart from Christ ordaining it. That's what the Bible says. I believe God actually appointed Kirsten to die in this way at this time. I've had a lot of people say, well, he didn't, This isn't what God wanted, but He allowed it. And I think, I can understand the the partial truth in what they're saying, but I think that takes away from the sovereignty of God to say He didn't really want it, He just allowed it. It's almost like you picture God going, Satan got me again. I wanted her to live longer and Andy to be happier, but He got her. But I'm sure I can find a way to make something good out of this. That is an insult. If that's how God is, then He's not God. Amen? Nothing towards the purpose of God. Our God is in the heavens and He does whatsoever He pleases. And so, I still don't understand it. I have questions about why would He give me this wife and this life that we had and these children and then take her away. I confess, I'm sad about it. I do not understand it. I probably will never understand it until I go to glory. And maybe even then I won't totally understand it. If you tried to explain it to me now, my head would explode and I would, you know... His infinite mind trying to pack into my little head, I just wouldn't get it. But He has indeed not only allowed it, He has ordained it. Every person that dies, they died exactly the time when Christ ordained for that to happen. Spurgeon talks about um, the medicine of our souls. And he says, God commits no errors in measuring out the ingredients which compose the medicine of our souls. God knows exactly what we need and He gives us exactly what we need. No mistakes made. 
If you don't believe me, think about this. What was the ultimate loss in the history of humanity? It was Christ on the cross. Did God just, did the Father just allow that? He didn't really want it to happen, but it happened and He can make something good of it? Of course not. The Bible tells us clearly that was foreordained. God predetermined exactly what was going to happen. And Jesus knew it and He went to do His Father's will. That's what His Father willed. That's what He wanted to have happen. Can you imagine the followers of Christ? Imagine his mother at the foot of the cross watching her son beaten, bruised beyond description to the point where you might not even recognize him, and saying, this is what the Father ordained. But that's exactly the truth. As painful as that must have been to endure and to watch. How many of you prayed for Kirsten to live? We all did, right? But God is strengthening our faith not by saying yes to our prayer. He didn't answer that prayer the way we wanted to. And here's something that I think He's teaching us. That our faith is not measured by our ability to manipulate God to get what we want. A lot of people came to me in in one form or another, not people of this congregation, but people said, if you just would believe more, you've got to have more faith. You've got to pray in faith, in the name of Jesus. And I appreciate what they were saying, but my, my faith and your faith is being strengthened by our willingness to submit to what God wants, not to have what we want. Believe me, this is not what I wanted. I still, to this day, if you asked me, I'd say I would go back and do it a different way. But this is what He wanted. I don't understand that. And I'm not saying I have great joy about it. I have joy in it, but I'm not joyful about what happened. But I think, uh, I think we need to submit to what He wants. And the more we do that, that's where our faith is strong. It, it would be easy if He did what He did for Lazarus. He brought her back from the dead. And we'd go, yay, He answered our prayer. And we'd all tell stories about how strong our faith is because of this. But our faith ought to be stronger by going through this. Because, it, by, because we are submitting to what He wants. Can you imagine, by the way, I'm not trying to be silly here, but when the Lord brought Lazarus back, I don't know what happened in those four days, but I think about Kirsten. I'm watching her die in her bed and I'm praying, God, please do a miracle. And we all understand why I wanted that, but how selfish if the Lord is calling her home and she's about to go to glory. I remember whispering in her ear, honey, your work is done. Well done. You're going to go be with the Lord very soon you're going to meet Jesus. So, you no. Know, how would that be if, if I then said, no, no, I want to pull her back down here and have her back in this life of, of miseries and sorrows because I would miss her. So we have to submit to what He wants. Next question. Can I communicate with her? No. I'll give you the answer right up front. Okay, I'm not going to go weird on you here. Um, of course I cannot. I used to read these passages in the Bible about necromancy, witchcraft. You know, there's different words for it. People that would try to communicate with the dead. And I'd scratch my head and I'd say, what's wrong with these people? What are they doing? You know, why are they, they know this is wrong, and why are they even doing it? I think I understand more now. I'm not, I'm not going to go do it. I'm not going to try to do it. It's forbidden in Scripture and it's wrong. But I would, there's a part of me that still says I would give anything to have a conversation with Kirsten. Just to talk to her one more time, to hear her voice. We go back and we watch these videos. It's, it's not her voice, but it's a replay of her voice. Of moments when she was happy and healthy and we were enjoying each other. 
Oh, how I would love to hear her voice. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you love to have one more conversation? I don't think it's wrong to say I would, that would be nice as long as we don't try to do it. But this is why death is so excruciating. Death is a final painful separation in this life from that person. There is no more communication. Not one word, not one sound, not one look. I, I, would, I long to see her look in my eye, not in the picture hanging on my wall that's frozen there, but her, her living face moving and the, the twinkle in her eye. But I, I will not. That will not happen, I can promise you. But I still long for it. I still long to be with her. I long to, to hear her. But God forbids us of these things because we are separated from her. Again, if death was, wow, I don't get to be with her, but the first of every month we can have a conference call, it would be a little less painful. But my children and I have talked about this. When she died, we knew the finality. You look at her body there and you say, it's over. And then you start thinking, oh, I wish I would have had one more conversation because you know how final it is. Final in terms of this life. So what happened to her soul? The catechism question says, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. Made perfect in holiness. So she's free from stain, free from pollution, the inclination to sin. Our souls pass into a glorious place. I'm not going to try to pretend I know what that place is, but Jesus said in John 14, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? There's a place prepared for the souls of those believers. Our souls pass not only into a glorious place, but into a glorious company. Kirsten is with Christ, first and foremost. That's enough. But she's with the angels. And we think of angels, you know, sometimes we think of the pretty fluttering things. The angels are these incredible beings that we can't even comprehend. Whenever a human being saw them, they would immediately be on their face trembling. So she's with the angels. She's with all the saints that have gone before. Hebrews 12, 22-24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. We sing that song for all the saints, and there's a line in there that I'm having inscribed on Kirsten's uh, memorial stone. O blessed communion, fellowship divine, we feebly struggle, they in glory shine. So she is with all the saints that have gone before us. We sing the church is one foundation. We sang this at her funeral. We were singing it with my family. And this last verse says, it's talking about the church. She is the church. While she on earth has union with God, the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. Those who have won their rest, like my beloved wife, have mystic sweet communion with all the other saints who have gone before her. Isn't that beautiful? So, that's what's happened to her soul. Paul talks about having a desire to depart and be with Christ. We memorized it in Philippians 2. And we know that being with Christ is far better. Now, it's easy to look at a wife suffering from cancer and say, well, yeah, anything would be better than this. 
Even if you're having your best day ever on earth, and that's the day you die, it's still far better, Paul says, to go, to depart, and to be with Christ. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about being willing, rather, to be absent from the body, and therefore present with the Lord. So that therefore tells me it's immediate. When, you're ab- when the soul is absent from the body, it's immediately present with the Lord. Matthew Henry says, when we close our eyes to this world, we shall open them in a world of glory and our faith will be turned into sight. Right? Faith is believing things you don't see. Kirsten is seeing it now. Oh, I wish I could see what she's seeing. So what happened to her body? This is a little bit trickier one. And again, I want to be really careful here, but I think I can say with some confidence the things I'm going to bring you directly from God's Word. Well, the catechism question says, their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. We were just there. Her body is still under the dirt. And what happens to those bodies? I believe, and I think this Bible teaches, that we're going to be raised with the same bodies. It's a resurrection. It's not a new creation. It is, in a sense, but it's a re- they wouldn't use the word resurrection if it wasn't bringing up that same body to new life. It's the same substance, the same essence, the same stuff, although differing in regard to their qualities. It's better stuff, but it's made from the same stuff, our new body. 2 Corinthians 5, here's what Paul says in a, a lesser-known passage about what happens when we die. And he's talking here about the body when he talks about our tent, our tabernacle. There may may also be referencing the earth here, but no doubt he's at least talking about our body. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So I think he's saying our human bodies were made in a sense from other bodies, right? We all came from our mother. We came from humanity, while God made us and knit us together in our mother's womb, the the heavenly body we're going to have is made by God, but it's made from our earthly body. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Someone emailed me back this week and said, I want my new body now. I forget who that was, but you know, you ever feel that way? Aches and pains? We groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And he closes that section with this. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Romans 8, we memorized this a few months ago. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And at the end of that, you remember he says, we groan within ourselves, waiting for what? The adoption, that is to say, the redemption of our body. If our, if our eternal body, if our glorified body had nothing to do with our earthly body, I don't think they would talk about the redemption of our body. That body that's in the grave is somehow going to be redeemed into this glorious body. Jeff read 1 Corinthians 15 earlier. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? 
You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Okay, well, so when you plant something, he gives this farming analogy. When the corn comes up, it came from that same seed. It wasn't a different thing. When you plant corn, you get corn. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen. Matthew Henry talks about how our bodies are, our dead bodies are vile, right? They went to Lazarus after four days and the sister said, Oh Lord, don't open that. He's been in there for four days. It's going to be disgusting. They're loathsome. But when we rise, God is going to infuse our bodies with this new life and make us more glorious than we could ever imagine. I don't even have a clue how to explain it or try to understand it. But he says our bodies will be spiritual, but he doesn't say they'll be changed into spirit. This is important. We're going to have real bodies. Doug Wilson talks about when we're in heaven, we're not going to be doing this floaty thing, you know, just floating around. We're going to have bodies, real bodies. The expression is used comparatively when he says they're spiritual bodies. He's saying it's a different kind of body than what we have now, but it's not just a spirit. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4. I'll read you this whole passage, and I'm trying to give you as much Scripture as I can so you don't think this is just my ideas. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And by the way, Paul is not saying don't grieve. Clearly in the Bible, many times it talks about grieving. We should grieve as it is appropriate. Believe me, I have shed many tears and I will continue to. And as I know many of you have. We must grieve, in fact. If you don't grieve, it's going to cause problems. But we don't want to grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. There was a belief becoming prevalent in Paul's time that, um, that the people who had already died in Christ would not be raised. It would only be those who were alive when he came back. And Paul is trying to dispel that and come against it. He said, the Lord... Okay, uh, for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel... And with the sound of the trumpet of God, that is going to be a scene to behold when He comes back. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul says not only are they going to rise, they actually get to go first. They come up out of the grave. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That should give us some hope and some encouragement. So these are words that Paul is giving us to give us comfort. Not comfort like, okay, now I feel happy. I'm not going to be sad anymore. But you can have comfort and you can have grieving at the same time. This is something I'm learning. And it's, it's strange. I, I often have, I'll sit on the back porch and I'll hear the birds chirping and I'll watch my children playing and I'll think, I have my children and I have my church and I have Christ and nothing can take me out of His hand and I'm rehearsing this list of these blessings and I think, in many ways, God has been incredibly merciful to me. I do have many reasons for joy. And then I'll look over at the bed and see Kirsten's pillow and I'll start weeping. Right in the same moment. But you can have both. So those who have fallen asleep in Christ... 
By the way, the sleep we have in Christ is very different, right? Our sleep is interrupted by lightning, by bad dreams. Sometimes it's not very restful. You wake up and you feel like you didn't sleep. That's not what it's going to be like when, as her body is sleeping and resting in Jesus. It's perfect, peaceful, uninterrupted, blissful sleep, resting in the arms of Jesus. She, her body is literally resting in the arms of Jesus. Listen to the continuity when I'm talking about it being that same body raised up. In Philippians 3, we'll get there next month when we memorize this. He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Hear it again. He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. It's not a brand new body unrelated to this one. It's transforming that dead body. Listen to these astonishing words from Luke 24 when Jesus appeared to His disciples. Remember what He said? See My hands and My feet. Touch Me. Remember they thought, it's a spirit. He's telling them, I'm not a spirit. I have a new body, but it's not a spirit. Touch Me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when He had said this, He showed them His hands and His feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy... And we're marveling. He said to them, what did he say next? Anybody remember? Let's eat. You guys got any food around here? Is there anything to eat? Spirits don't need food, right? He ate food. I got to believe I'm going to have Heath's smoked chicken on my glorified body or something. If it's even possible, something better than Heath's smoked chicken. I don't know. I'm sure the Lord has some marvelous things for us to eat up there. So notice the continuity. There's also discontinuity. But he says, what is sown is perishable, what's raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power, but it's connected to what was sown. It's sown a natural body, it's raised, not a spirit, it's raised a spiritual body. Over and over, he says that thing about being sown and raised. Okay. What about the new heavens and the new earth? What is that all about? We've all read Revelation 21 with this incredible description of the streets of gold and the gates of pearl. And um, I believe the Bible is teaching, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to get into amillennial and postmillennialism and all that. That's a different topic. But I think, I think no matter where you are on that, we can all agree that ultimately we all end up living with our new glorified bodies in this new heavens and new earth that's described in Revelation. It's actually described in the Old Testament too. Isaiah says in chapter 65, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Isaiah 66, As the new heavens and the new earth that I shall make remain before me, says the Lord. 2 Peter chapter 3, According to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Romans 8, I talked about it a little bit earlier. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. So I think the new heavens and new earth, it's going to be this earth, but better. It's going to be the Garden of Eden, but more glorified. This heavens and earth are going to pass away, but I don't think in a way that they're completely just poof, gone. They're going to be glorified and made so new and so much better we won't even recognize them. But there is continuity here. John Piper talks about uh, the freedom of the glory of the children of God comes first. We tend to think, oh, creation's going to be renewed 
And then we say to our loved ones, when you die, you're going to get to go and enjoy that new creation with your glorified body. It's actually the opposite. We're given glorified bodies and God creates this glorified heavens, the new heavens and the new earth for our glorified bodies to dwell in with Him. And if you read the order, that's actually what it says. The whole creation is fitted by God as a suitable dwelling for the glorified family, the family of believers. All right. Jesus said He is the resurrection and the life. This doesn't just mean that we will see our loved one one once again in heaven when we die. It does mean that, but it means more than that. It means that Jesus is our life to our bodies and our souls right now. In other words, we as believers have already started our eternal life. You know, Christianity is the religion of the now and the not yet. We still have these earthly bodies that are groaning, waiting for the redemption, for our glorified bodies. But our souls, once you're regenerated, we have eternal souls. We're already in eternal life in that sense. The Bible talks about we are seated with Him in the heavenly realms. And you think, why didn't He say we're going to be seated with Him? In one sense, we're already there. Our eternal life has started. You know, was it Martha that's talking to Jesus and she said, Oh, I know, I know. When we die at the final resurrection, we're going to go be resurrected. And Jesus said, You're missing the point. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. So the great thing about Lazarus wasn't that he came back to live for a few more years. He had to die again later. You know, bummer. The great thing about Lazarus, Jesus was showing us a picture that I have life that no one else can give you. The life I have, it goes from now until forever. Forever and ever and ever without end. That's what he meant when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. So I hope you can take all this and make it Make heaven and and eternal life not such a sentimental thing, but something that's solid and sure that we can count on even in the midst of our grief. So in conclusion, what do we do with all this, with the answers to these questions? And there's a lot more to talk about. I'm sure I've missed a lot of things. But I hope this helps us to get our head around some of these difficult uh, things that maybe we haven't studied the Bible on. This, this might sound harsh, but I think the Lord is teaching this to me, and so I want to share it with you. Until we value the eternal life of our souls more than we value our life here on earth and these bodies, we're going to end up being disappointed with God a lot. I mean, it's a shameful thing to say as believers, we're disappointed with God. But because we love our life so much, we love the people around us, we love our church. We love our children. The thought of parting with them. I talked to a family this week that has an 11-year-old boy who has an incurable tumor, inoperable, and they're believers. And they said, our son is a believer. He has a strong testimony. He has a beautiful story. But they said, we don't know how to prepare for the pain of separation of losing him. And I said, I don't know how to prepare you for that either, but you do want to be prepared for that. And this is what I want us to get. I want us to get... That while we love each other and we love our church, and I'm, I'm not saying this life doesn't matter, that's, not, that's falling into the other side of the ditch, right? But we should value our eternal life, our eternal soul so much more than we value the things of this earth and our earthly bodies. We should be dreaming of that glorified body and thinking about 
what that's going to be like. Way more than we think about the things of this earth. We know, James says, our life is but a mist. It's just a vapor. It's here today, gone tomorrow. I can't tell you looking out who will be the next among us to go be with the Lord. We don't know. But we're all going to go someday, right? It's not like Kirsten died. That was sad. But thankfully the rest of us get to live forever on earth. That's not obviously the case. So said another way, maybe this is a nicer way of saying it. We will enjoy God and glorify Him more when we learn to value our eternal life and our glorified bodies more than our life now and our body now. We don't want to be disappointed with God. We want to be glorifying Him and enjoying Him. And I think the way to do that is to think more about heaven. I've been thinking about it a lot more than I ever did. Because there's my wife and she's gone and I think... I need to go back and hear God's promises. I need to read them again. I need to hear them over and over and over again. I need to believe them more than I believed them before. That heaven is not just this floaty thing that she's in a better place. She is in a better place. She is with Christ. She is with the angels. She is with the saints that have gone before. Her soul is in perfect peace. And her body, one day, she's going to get that glorified body and... She's going to be able to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth with all of us. Amen? So as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, we do grieve, but not as those without hope. Kirsten and I at bedtime used to lie in bed and we'd squeeze squeeze hands and I'd say to her almost every night, hasn't God been good to us today? This was for years, including after she had cancer. And I'd say, hasn't God been good to us today? And she'd say, God has been so good to us. So we should be able to say in the midst of our sorrow and our weeping, knowing what we know about death and knowing what we know about the resurrection, we should be able to say, even today, God has been good to us. And I'll close with an excerpt from the 16th Psalm. I read it in our call to worship, but I want you to hear it again. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me because the Lord, because I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have been so kind as to give us your word. You have told us everything we need to know about this, and it is a comfort to us. I pray that it would be even more of a comfort to it than it has been, that as we contemplate those that have gone before us, as we think about the loss of those that will go in the future, and even losing our own lives, Lord, may we treasure the life You have given us. It is a gift, but may we rejoice knowing that we have this incredible, inexplicable beautiful inheritance that the lines have indeed fallen unto us in pleasant places because you have gone 
to prepare a place for us. Oh, how we long to go there. May we long for it more and more as you continue to sanctify us and we die unto our sin and live more and more unto righteousness. In Jesus' name, Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.